recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 59 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and is online at duntroon.law. I have a newsletter in Hong Kong about PR called digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on social media. That's LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels if you so prefer. Plus, our newsletter, PRLawPodcast.club. Ewan, what's happening? Cam, um, Canada, we won the World Hockey Championships. Uh, I don't know if you've fallen this. Yeah, I, I think uh, our listeners might not even be aware much about the Hockey Championships, but uh, <laughs> we were, uh, you know, Canada obviously has been pretty good at uh, this whole ice hockey thing, but we uh, we got off to a bad start over there, but it looks like, like we made up for it. We, I think we lost to some pretty lowly teams at the beginning. Yeah, lost the first three games, and snuck into the playoffs, and and won the gold in overtime. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't watch it, but you know, I sort of feel it's just one of those things, right? By default, whenever Canada does anything impressive in hockey, you have to you have to feel that sort of patriotic sense of well, Something. hey, good for us because yeah. that's supposed to be the thing that we're good at, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do. You know what I'm following this year? You and I am totally digressing here off our main subject, but uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, they actually have a, a, a very good team or a decent team this year. And I've actually been watching them from time to time. And what's interesting, I guess, people who don't follow sports, I mean, the pandemic has had a big impact, obviously, on on sports, although, you know, people are coming back into the arenas and the stadiums. Um, but those teams in Canada, up until a few hours ago, were not able to cross the border. So, you know, a lot of the Canadian-based teams have been playing out of the United States. Um, this is happening in, in soccer and, and baseball. Uh, but I saw an alert you in yesterday or last night, Hong Kong time, that said the border is actually going to open up for, for sports teams in Canada. Well, for I, I don't know for all sports teams. I know that for the NHL playoffs that the government issued a special exemption for hockey players to travel to the States for yeah. the playoffs. So yeah. there you go. Some progress. Anyway, you and let's get into it. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Okay, you and I understand that we are going to take a look at uh, one of the more divisive and hotly debated issues these days, working from home. <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. right, in a sort of roundabout way, I suppose. Well, you know, I read this article last weekend by um, a prominent employment lawyer arguing that employees better get ready for getting back in the office and back to business as usual, whether they like it or not. And, you know, I just came away from that article thinking, yeah, I don't. I don't know that that's really how things are going to go. So I I thought, why don't I sort of dig into this and Mm. do a little bit of research? Well, I came across some rather interesting evidence, Cam, that would strongly suggest that a fundamental shift in the employer-employee relationship 
um, is going to occur post pandemic. We're getting into it already. And the first issue cam is a demographic shift. And this is kind of crazy. So according to the U S census bureau for the first time on record in 2020, Population growth for Americans between the ages of 20 and 64 actually shrank in the U.S. Hmm. Wow. Okay, that's a big deal. It is. And the U.S. is currently experiencing the lowest birth rate in U.S. history. So, I mean, you think about those two issues. And then, uh, you know, according to a report prepared by, by MC, they're a, a labor market data company, CAM, based in the U.S., the U.S. market is currently facing a labor shortage of 6 million workers. Well, wow. why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons is that 3 million baby boomers left the workforce in 2020 and often from senior level positions, which are, you know, typically the most difficult to fill. And I mean, I, I had to sort of laugh at that one, Cam, because I know, you know, you and I were, were in our early 40s. How long have you had to listen to this whole spiel of, oh, don't worry, you know, the baby boomers, they're going to retire and you're going to be able to walk into these fantastic, fantastic positions. I mean, I've been hearing that probably as far back as high school. Um, Well, it looks like it may finally be starting to happen. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's not something I ever really expected to happen only because nobody ever walks into like these nice new positions easily no matter no matter what but i also think i mean you know i was talking um to somebody about this just the other day when we were talking again about people people getting older i think it was when phil mickelson won the won the pga championship actually a couple weekends ago at the age of 50 um the oldest uh, you know uh, age that anybody has done that people who are older or the boomers now who are into their 60s and even 70s they're oftentimes very sharp and still fit and still capable of work and i mean i can see why they hang on to it i I do think in 08 there was a lot of wealth destroyed although we've just i mean we're in the longest economic expansion in history at the moment so i think a lot of that should have come back and then some yeah i I don't know this it's it's a it's a long process and i am even now i'm not holding my my breath for it Right. Yeah. Well, a good, good point. Well, I mean, all of this to say, Cam, that in the United States, and this isn't just a U.S. issue, you know, there was a report in in Saturday's Globe and Mail, this is Canada's national newspaper, um, indicating that Canada is also likely to face a symbol, a similar sort of labor shortage this summer. Um, I saw a report in The Guardian talking about labor shortage in the U.K. Uh, This is this is a problem. And Mm -hmm. You know, it's resulting in sort of a fundamental shift in the power dynamic between employer and employee. And I think that that power dynamic is going to fundamentally change the employment relationship as we know it. So, you know, there's a report in the New York Times earlier this week. The share of job postings advertising no experience necessary is up two thirds over 2019 levels. The share of roles promising a starting bonus has doubled and 49% of organizations with predominantly blue collar workforces found it hard to retain workers. And that's up from 30% pre pandemic. So, you know, what does all of this mean? Well, I, I think really what it means is that, you know, this, this notion or this idea that, Hey, we're going to go back to, 
business as usual and employers, when they tell their employees, hey, you've got to come back to work and get back to the status quo, that they're just going to do that willingly. Well, a lot of the evidence strongly suggests otherwise. It suggests that I think employees are going to have far more bargaining and negotiating power um, in terms of looking for new roles, retaining the roles that they currently have, you know, seeking more flexible work arrangements, higher wages, better benefits. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on here, Kim. Yeah, you know, I suspect, and I mean, the pandemic, it's still technically happening, although in many parts of the world, you know, you can sort of see the end in sight. Um, and so people are already thinking sort of post-pandemic. And I can tell you, that, you know, that's the thinking in, in, in China as well, you know, this post-pandemic economy. But I do think, you know, we're coming out of this. I mean, it's it's almost going to be a two-year long, almost two-year long pandemic, right? I mean, it really hit in, in Western countries in March last year. You know, we're already into, into June the following year. And kind of coming out of the trauma and coming out of sort of the upheaval that the pandemic has caused... I do think that its impacts and ramifications are going to be extensive in so many areas of life. And I think one of the most transformational will be, yeah, the workplace. And this is this has kind of come up before, but I think the the idea that everyone was able to work from home and basically do much of the work that needed to get done, I'm not going to say all of it was able to get done, but I think a lot of it was, uh, probably in excess of what you know employers and employees expected the impact of that's going to be huge you know i mean it's people who didn't join the commute who didn't you know spend money on on gas and and lunches when they could make something at home because they're working at home like all of these kind of small things is going to sort of change the way that we think about work and i think right now this is only starting right because only now are people in north america sort of heading back to the office and, and these discussions are, are kicking off. And I think, you know, in a year, in two years, I think the workplace is going to look a lot different than it did in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, part of that sea change is going to be, maybe you just look at it, you take, say, for, for example, an individual who is returning to a rather traditional work environment, say, well, they're going to look around at competitive companies and see that the incentives that are being offered for that individual to go and take a position with them, such as, you know, more flexible work arrangements, better wages, there's going to be a lot of stuff on the table that is going to incentivize employees to pick up and make a move, right? So Mm -hmm. I think this isn't really going to be a matter of as an employer saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not prepared to do that. Sorry, you have to physically work for my office. Okay, fine. Then I'm leaving. Because why would I stay if my if your competitors are prepared to offer a far more flexible arrangement or a higher salary? So, I, you know, I think whether employers like this or not, whether they intend to sort of maintain a, a, a pre-pandemic, you know, stereotypical bricks and mortar operation, they're going to have to adapt. Um, and I think that those employers that have already turned their mind to these issues and are trying to structure, you know, a, a work arrangement that accommodates these needs from employees, they're going to get the best talent. 
Um, and then it's just going to be a matter of trying to retain that talent, which I also think is going to be a much more difficult prospect for employers going forward, at least for the next year or two. You know, you and I have a, a friend in, in California who was working in California, who's still working in California, uh, and who had been going to an office every day. Um, when the pandemic kicked off, a few months into it, he moved. He actually sold his home and moved further out, sort of into the sort of closer to to Nevada. And I mean, he didn't receive any transfer or or guarantee, but he was actually just placing his bet that he's not going to have to go back to work. And I think that may be the case. And so he figured he was going to capitalize on some, you know, cheaper property that he could purchase uh, and get more space because it didn't matter anymore. He didn't have to be in one of the big centers. And um, I think that's something that, that could really see a population increase in some of these more rural areas. Um, because if you can have sort of a rural lifestyle, but a city job, I mean, that's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too off topic on this, but I mean, that really has been one of the fascinating stories of the pandemic, right? That nobody really knew what was going to happen to real estate. But, you know, the the expectation, at least, was that we were probably going to see a bit of a downturn in terms of the value of of real estate. But really, what we've, what we've seen is people trying to buy up more space. Um, and I mean, particularly here in Canada, where that's been fascinating is it hasn't been in just sort of the major urban centers like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Um, it's been in smaller regional cities, you know, places like Thunder Bay, North Bay, Ontario. And I understand our listeners have never heard of any of these places. Believe me, there are people in, in Canada who've never heard of them either. Um, but all of these smaller regional centers are booming in a, in a completely unexpected way. And it's precisely to that point, Cam, that, you know, they're looking at this thinking, well, if there is a possibility of not having to be in a bricks and mortar office every day, why would I continue to live in my tiny square footage apartment in a downtown urban center when I can have space? Um, and a lot of people have made have made that choice, right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you've been following what's happening in Los Angeles, but I mean, real estate there has just absolutely exploded and they're getting, uh, you know, houses are being listed and bids are coming in at double the listing price. It has just gone crazy there in the last few weeks. So, I mean, even in Los Angeles, which is a, a major, major city in the United States, um, yeah, real estate has taken off for some reason post-pandemic. I'm not, I'm not even sure what's driving that, to be honest. I mean, there's not a lot of people traveling. Um, I think there's also money coming in from elsewhere. But anyway, that's, you're right. That's a whole, whole other subject. I think the main point, though, is yes, work is going to be something that I think the days of assuming when you get a job that you're going to be going into the office five days a week, I just think that that assumption can kind of go away. I think there's going to be some jobs where you have to do that. Um, but, but the assumption that that's automatically how it works is, is, is going to disappear. And you and, you know, after, after we go through this bit, I just want to let our listeners know, we're going to get into an actual detailed case of what you're talking about with a particular company that's trying to put in some new, new, new restrictions or new, new work, work plans, uh, to discuss right after this one. So we're going to get into this bit more soon as well. Right. Well, and then, you know, let's I don't want to delay getting into that uh, any more than we have to. But I wanted to make this one last point, Cam, and that is, you know, employers, 
I think there's also an opportunity here not to just distinguish yourself with, you know, better salaries and, and bonuses and a more inclusive workplace, because let's be honest, I mean, issues of, of equity, of diversity, of inclusion, these are major, major issues, um, particularly, particularly right now and things that employees are prioritizing in a way that we, we haven't really seen in the, in sort of the last 10 years. Um, but one thing that employers can also do to distinguish themselves is good training, and that might sound like, you know, it's not the sexiest of, of, of topics. It's not like a big bonus or or stock options. But, you know, a good training program does help to bring in and attract top talent. And it will also help to retain good talent if they know that in coming to your company, they're going to get to work with with the best, with good experienced workers and integrate into a good training program that will situate them well within the market, situate them well within their profession and open further doors for them down the road. So, you know, I think that's one very, very conscious thing, training mentorship that employers can really, really focus on to distinguish themselves from their competitors in this, in this sort of new emerging employer employee dynamic. Yeah. And really quickly, Ewan, I mean, I know that, over the past year, especially in Canada and the U.S., where you know people have been at home sometimes for for a year already, people have gotten comfortable to to, to working from home, and they're pushing for you know full time working at home. But you know, in the in the last year and a half, I mean, nobody has gone into the office, right? Like in, in many parts of of North America, there's been a, a total lockdown. And so even if you're working from home, all of your peers are also working from home, and so it kind of makes sense. Do you think that if you know, as we move into this new world where there are more people going into work, I mean, the lockdowns will be lifted. There will be more commerce, sort of more more outside interaction. Do you think people will begin to miss that? Because I think that was easy to pass up when everybody is not in the office. But when there's that division, do you think that might eventually draw more people into the office again? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that that's also part of why we're seeing a lot of companies introduce hybrid approaches, right? We, Mm -hmm. we talked about this. I can't remember what episode it was. We probably put a link in the, in the show notes to a number of large companies. We looked at Microsoft, we looked at Google and there are companies that are moving to that hybrid approach where employees would come in once or twice a week, because I think you're absolutely right. There is a great deal of value in having employees in a common physical space where they can have those those interactions that aren't always work related, but are sort of essential to building that relationship and camaraderie and, and are one of the main reasons that keep employees in a particular employment environment. Right. Um, it's not always just about who pays me the most and gives me the best benefits and best bonuses. You know, what are what's what's my relationship and interpersonal relationships with like with with the employees that I work with? And I think in continuing to maintain those, at least some some physical interaction, you know, face-to-face interaction in an office space is going to continue to be very, very important and valuable to a lot of companies. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. 
All right, Ewan. Well, continuing on this subject, I wanted to get into Apple. You know, we, we, we talked about them a couple of weeks ago on its sort of China practices, and I want to get into them again today because I think that some steps that they took this week kind of illustrate what you're talking about sort of on a on a macro level. So, I mean, earlier last week, Apple came out with an announcement for their own staff basically saying that they have adopted, uh, you know, a more balanced sort of work home life schedule. And as part of that, uh, employees would be expected to come into the office in Cupertino on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday of every week, but they could work from home or work remotely on Wednesday and Friday. And I mean, this is actually a a, a big change for Apple, which has, I guess, traditionally been quite assertive in requiring all of their employees to actually be at the office 100% of the time. So it actually earned some some kudos in some of the media coverage over the decision. However, it was only 48 hours later that the staff came back and said, no way, this is not at all uh, what, we, what we would like to do. It's interesting, Ewan, because in some of the coverage, and, and this did get quite a bit of coverage, because a, a, a few of the staff wrote a, a letter, a, a lengthy letter to Tim Cook, you know, on this subject. But further to what you were, you know, making the case earlier, um, you know, there's a survey that that's been widely cited in some of these some of these articles, stating that you know almost forty percent, so thirty nine percent of those who responded would consider quitting their jobs if not allowed to work from home. Which again is sort of what you were talking about, and and other tech companies have already also kind of embraced this. So Microsoft and Google have a two or three day week in the office, but it's much more flexible in terms of how those days are divided up, and you know your your own department or your line manager can can help make those calls. Whereas you know the investment banks like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, um, Netflix, technology, you know they've already said they want their workers back a hundred percent of the time, and you know, McKinsey, which you're familiar with, you and you know, has basically said nine out of ten companies will be combining remote and on-site working. So, you know, what Apple has announced is pretty mainstream, I would say. But yeah, employees are 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 not a fan of it. I mean, what are you seeing, you in so far in terms of this? Is a split schedule good enough, or do companies have to go further? Yeah, great, great question. I mean. You know, it really is sort of industry specific. Um, I think, you know, most of what we've seen in Canada so far is there does seem to be a a push. Um, And again, we're sort of very still very early stages in terms of reopening. Right. I mean, we're still largely in lockdown. I mean, there's a crazy outbreak of the pandemic in in Manitoba currently. Um, You know, I think we're probably going to see a lot of these hybrid approaches as well. But I also think that this is going to be a great example of where, you know, the the market is really going to dictate how this plays out. I mean, I think it's all well and good if you as a company decide we're going to introduce a hybrid approach. Well, okay, what was the consultation process with your employees? And I think this is where we can't really take any sort of broad stroke approaches. We really have to look at each case on, you know, each company on a case by case basis in terms of consulting with your employees and your HR departments in terms of what they actually want and what is beneficial for the business as well. Um, But I mean, I think ultimately, if it doesn't work for employees, they're not going to stay. 
and they're going to search out a competitor that is prepared to to provide that schedule that is conducive to whatever it is that they want. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I just I, I get where Apple's going. And, and again, I think it ultimately I think it's a good approach. Um, but it, it, does this just mean that Apple employees will ultimately leave and go somewhere else where they're going to get their five days a week at home if that's ultimately what they want? Well, that's what they are claiming. Exactly what they are claiming uh, is going to happen. So as I said, they, they released a letter. I'm going to read a bit of it. It is lengthy, which I think is is not good. But I mean, basically, it, it, it begins, I'm going to read part of this, but to summarize part of it to, to not bore people. I mean, it, it does mention, you know, the pandemic and be, being a difficult year. Um, and that there's probably more on, on the work from home um, announcement that probably hasn't been shared yet. Um, but I'm going to start reading here, Ewan. So the letter says, quote, however, we would like to take the opportunity to communicate a growing concern among our colleagues that Apple's remote location flexible work policy and the communication around it have already forced some of our colleagues to quit. Without the inclusivity that flexibility brings, many of us feel we have to choose between either a combination of our families, our well-being, and being empowered to do our best work, or being a part of Apple. This is a decision none of us take lightly, and a decision many would prefer not to have to make. These concerns are largely what prompted us to advocate for changes to these policies, and data collected will reflect those concerns. Over the last year, we have often felt not just unheard, but at times actively ignored. Messages like, we know many of you are eager to reconnect in person with your colleagues back in the office, with no messaging acknowledging that there are directly contradictory feelings amongst us, feels dismissive and invalidating. Not only do many of us already feel well-connected with our colleagues worldwide, but better connected now than ever. We've come to look forward to working as we are now without the daily need to return to the office. It feels like there's a disconnect between how the executive team thinks about the remote location flexible work and the lived experience of many of Apple's employees. Thoughts? Huh. Well, well, a few things. First of all, um, the word feel showed up a lot in that, <laughs> in, in that speech, which is kind of interesting. And also, it, 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 I mean, and I get that this is kind of the point, um, but it almost it almost read like they were speaking. You know, I, I'm thinking of showing my total nerdy tendencies here, Cam, but a, a little Star Trek, the next generation reference, the, the Borg, right? Mm-hmm. The Borg all being plugged in, all being one unified being, despite them being, you know, in, in mm-hmm. occupying individual bodies. It's sort of what it sounded. It's like, sounded like it's like we communicate, we are one, we are all together. And you as the executives don't get it. Um, you know, here's, here's my question. Here's my question, Cam. These are, very, very, very prestigious and sought after positions. Mm -hmm. So I understand how it would be, it could be bad for Apple's image and bad for branding. But I mean, realistically, if they put their foot down and said, nope, no dice, um, we're going with this hybrid approach, whether you like it or not, we hope that you would stay, but if not, we understand and we wish you all the best. Um, Is it really going to be difficult 
to fill these positions with the same equally qualified um, individuals, given the demand for for a role at Apple. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I struggled with this, Ewan, when I read it the first time, um, which was last week. And because I'm in favor of flexible work and work from home, I, like I, I'm a big proponent of that. But there was something about this letter that didn't sit right with me. And I'm, I'm still not even sure if I can identify exactly what that is. But I think you're kind of touching on a little bit of it. So so first, I, I do find it a bit self-indulgent. And I think the length of this letter is uh, more evidence of that. Like, I, I think there is a way to raise this and basically just say, look, the, you know, the, the, the world has changed. Other companies are going to this model. And, you know, two days isn't enough. You know, we like more than that. And I almost feel like that would be a, a more powerful message, you know, than than sort of talking about or or at least sort of framing the debate in this way, uh, sort of about not being empowered and things like that, which is like it almost feels like a, a social justice tone to this. And I'm not sure it fits the the circumstance. Yeah, I think that's a great point because we're not talking. These are not precarious blue collar workers um scraping by on on low wages and poor working conditions so you know not to suggest that they don't have an argument as workers and and aren't entitled to 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 make their their feelings known i think it's good that they're doing that there's that word feel and feelings again Mm -hmm. um but i i don't know that they're necessarily from a public perspective or a pr perspective going to garner a great deal of sympathy as highly paid workers at Apple of all places, right? Right. And I'm going to get into their actual demands here, Ewan. So so I'm going to yeah, yeah, wrap this up. So, so the letter says, quote, almost all of us have worked fully remote for over a year now, though the experience arguably would have been better less one pandemic. We have developed two major versions of all our operating systems, organized two full WWDCs, which is the, um, uh, the developers conference, introduced numerous new products, transitioned to our own chipsets, and supported our customers with the same level of care as before. We have already piloted location-flexible work the last 15 months under much more extreme conditions, and we were very successful in doing so. Finding the following benefits of remote and location-flexible work for a large number of our colleagues. Bullet one, diversity and inclusion in retention and hiring. Number two, tearing down previously existing communication barriers. Number three, better work-life balance. Number four, better integration of existing remote location-flexible workers. And number five, reduced spread of pathogens. Those were the benefits of the uh, arrangement. Here's what they're asking for you. And quote, we have gathered some of our requests and action items to help continue the conversation and make sure everyone is heard. We are formally requesting that Apple considers remote and location-flexible work decisions to be as autonomous for a team to decide as are hiring decisions. Number two, we are formally requesting a company-wide recurring short survey with a clearly structured and transparent communication feedback process at the company-wide level, organization-wide level, and team-wide level covering topics listed below. We're formally requesting a question about employee churn due to remote work be added to exit interviews. 
We are formally requesting a transparent, clear plan of action to accommodate disabilities via on-site, off-site, remote, hybrid, or otherwise location-flexible work. And we're formally requesting insight into the environmental impact of returning to on-site in-person work and how permanent, remote, and location flexibility could offset that impact. Again, thoughts, Mr. Employment Lawyer. <laughs> wow. Well, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Look, I mean, I, I don't think all of this stuff is is bad. No. You know, e- e- examinations around diversity and inclusion, issues of disability. This stuff is all very, very valuable and important. And I mean, I, you know, I, I don't work at Apple. I don't presume to know um what what due diligence they have done around these issues. But if it has been inadequate, then Apple should step up. Um, you know, they, they certainly are in a financial position to do so. Um, why not? So, you know, I think some of these issues, this should be easy as the company to turn around and say, okay, hey, you know, we will address some of these concerns, but some of these concerns we're not going to address. And I think ultimately what's what's going to happen here. You know, this is going to be a push comes to shove sort of issue. I, th- I think as a company, clearly they are prioritizing a hybrid approach where they, they will ultimately compel workers to come back. And I think that if those workers ultimately decide they're not they're not going to play ball in that regard, um, then Apple's position, I suspect, is going to be, well, we're sorry. We think that we're do- we're going above and beyond. And here's the other thing. When you look and you compare their approach to other tech companies, it's not as though what they're suggesting and recommending is so removed from their competitors. In fact, it's entirely consistent with what a number of their competitors are doing. And it's above and beyond what the ramification, what the situation was pre-pandemic. So they can very easily, um, and I'm sure you and I could could work together on putting together a statement, Cam, but you know, something to the effect of we have listened. We have, you know, we have addressed your concerns. This is part of where this hybrid approach comes from, because we, we agree with you that, you know, the, the, the environment can be more efficient. It can be more productive, more, more conducive to a strong, healthy employer employee relationship than what it has been in the past. As such, we are moving to this hybrid approach and we will look at equity and diversity within the company. We will look at diversity and inclusion. We'll look at disability issues. We will take all of these things into account. I mean, you know, this sort of seems like a bit of a no brainer from Apple's perspective in terms of how to fix this. I just don't think that employees are ultimately going to get the end result that they want. Yeah, I am. I'm pretty on board with what you're saying. You're right. I mean, on, on the surface or at face value, there's nothing wrong with these requests. And actually, I mean, we could talk at length about it. it's it's the company's sort of diversity and inclusion policies, accessibility, etc. Because there's there's quite a bit there actually to 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 go over. What I wonder though, you and and this is something I, I genuinely don't know, which is, I mean, I I do think and you know as we've touched on multiple times here that you know work is going to change there's going to be more flexibility more work from home but i i wonder a year or two from now are are we are we end up going to settle on a, a hybrid approach or you know or or having everybody back 100% of the time because i know like we haven't had the work from home in Hong Kong or China or Asia in general the way you have had there in Canada and the U.S., right? So, I mean, I, I was home last February, March, April, but then I was back in the office again until November. 
uh, and we've basically been in the office this entire year already um, in Hong Kong. So, but I remember after the month or two months of working at home, when the edict came down that said, okay, it's back to work Monday, that sucked. Like I didn't like seeing that message and it was a bummer. And I, like I was getting work done at home and there was that feeling of like, what, like why, 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 why is this something we have to do? But, um, you know, within a couple of days, it was almost like I had never worked from home. I was fully back into the swing of things just as they normally were. And I wonder if that is going to happen in some of these cases where, where people just kind of just get used to it again and start coming in more often. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, uh, on a long enough timeline, this is going to work itself out one way or another. But you raise a very good point in two years time. Um, are we going to see the same kind of demand for working from home um, as what we're seeing now? I, I, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, but, you know, I think I think there's sort of there's sort of two main buckets here, Cam, sort of bucket number one, I mm -hmm. think of in terms of, you know, issues related to the pandemic of we're working from home because we have to. Um, from a safety perspective, and there's good reason to do so. But that's not necessarily considering all of the other very, very valuable and constructive reasons to continue to work from home, you know, two years from now, 10 years from now, um, many of which are being raised by these Apple employees, but a number of which, uh, you know, are not, or I didn't hear, or perhaps, you know, it's just in the longer version of the letter, but, you know, issues such as, um, you know, access to, to childcare or being able to have um, more time with your children if you're working from home, particularly young children. And there's advantages to that, as we've discussed, that it doesn't remove um, either mothers or fathers from, from the work environment. They can continue to remain productive and employees while also being caregivers, uh, which you can't do when you have to physically be in an office. So, you know, there's, there's lots of other perks to continuing down this road that actually have absolutely nothing to do with the pandemic. And I think that, you know, those issues have really come to the foreground as a result of the pandemic, but are they still going to be live two, three, four, five years from now, the way that they currently are? So I can see also why Apple employees are striking while the iron is hot. And I think a lot of employees are striking while the iron is hot around all of these issues. My concern is, is exactly to your point, you know, in another year, two or three, uh, you know, are people going to care the same way? Or is this going to be like, you know, 3D in the movie theaters where it was like a big deal for a while and then it was just sort of mm. disappeared nobody cared anymore yeah and just one last thought before we close this out too from a communications perspective is you may be releasing uh, a policy for your employees but assume that that will be public and and that's something i think companies have to keep in mind you know we've seen it with apple we've seen it with some of the other ones these are often not announcements these companies are putting out they're, they're, these are staff that are sending these internal messages to reporters or posting them on reddit or whatever it might be and they're becoming public and I think this is, 
relatively new. I think normally, you know, messages from HR are kept in-house usually, unless there really is something newsworthy or something kind of crazy going on. It can be leaked. But I think in this case where, you know, companies are coming back, people are comparing. It makes sense, right? I mean, all of the companies have gone through the pandemic. It's not like it's only affected some of them. And so there's going to be this look at how they're responding to these requests for flexible, uh, you know, working experiences. So, you know, just beware of that. Be careful. Think about the wording as though it were something that's going to go external before you share it with your employees. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no. Wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. What have you got, Ewan? Cam, I wanted to, to suggest um, people check out an editorial that I read uh, yesterday. This is an editorial. The title was called um, Honoring the Children. It was written by Jody Wilson-Raybould, who you might be familiar yes. with, Cam. Um, she is, she's an independent member of parliament. We, you know, this story sort of dropped while we were recording last week. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't really have a chance to, to discuss it. But, you know, I, I, I wanted to bring this up. It's an awful story. It's made international headlines. And that's the, you know, the discovery of the mass grave at um, what was once Canada's largest Indigenous residential school. The grave was found to contain the bodies of 215 children of, and I, I apologize for, for, for for mispronouncing this, but the uh, sell up to First Nation, um, some of these children were as young as three years old. You know, for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with the Canadian residential schools, um, you know, from the late 18th century until the late 70s, many First Nations children were forced to attend these schools. They were government funded Christian schools, typically operated by the Catholic Church. Um, and effectively, I mean, they were just full-scale assimilation factories. Um, you know, these children, they were taken away from their families. Many were physically and sexually abused. They were forbidden from learning their, you know, their culture, speaking their language, uh, you know, in some cases killed. Anyway, this, this editorial, Cam, it is an absolutely scathing indictment of Canada's government under the leadership of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, this is an important read for anyone globally who is familiar or interested in Indigenous issues. Man, it it um, it hurts, and it's supposed to hurt, and it's a really really important read. Yeah, the only I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, she does have an axe to grind, though, with the prime minister, unfortunately, which could slightly taint her arguments or her critiques of the prime minister. But agree. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think our listeners are probably not familiar with the location, but yeah, it's just in a rural part of, of Canada where this was discovered. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was quite harrowing when, when, when that news broke uh, inside Canada. I was uh, also something quite serious, not as horrific, but, but, but actually also quite serious, Ewan. And I don't know if you remember, but I, I mean, a couple of years ago, I, I read a really interesting article about this sort of attack on U.S., embassy staff in Havana. And I don't know if you heard about this, um, but there were something like 12 or 13 Americans who were working there who got really sick and they heard ringing in their ears. And and in some cases they, they were vomiting and they had migraine headaches and they were sent home. And there was this investigation into like what, what was going on. And they thought there might've been somebody, either the government or, or other nefarious 
actors sort of sending radio waves or something at these staff. Do you remember this story? No. No, so not at all. I remember when that broke. And since then, this has happened to U.S. staff all over the world, including in Washington, D.C., with people who were working in Trump's White House. And it's become a major issue and also an unsolved mystery, in fact. And the New Yorker pulls all of this together in kind of a scary article. New Yorker obviously does a fantastic job on these kinds of subjects. It's called, Are U.S. Officials Under Silent Attack? The Havana Syndrome First Affected Spies and Diplomats in Cuba. Now it has spread to the White House. And some of the stories in here and some of the U.S. staff that they interview, I mean, this gets so bad that they can't stand up. It's enough to knock them over. And they pass out, and this has now happened to well over 100 people. And it's quite scary, And this has been going on now for a couple of years and still no idea who's behind it. They suspect it's Russia, but there's no evidence that it's Russia. And so, uh, yeah, this is uh, if if you haven't heard about this or even if you have, this is a really good piece to tie everything that we know together so far. That's insane. I had I I don't I don't know how I hadn't heard about this, but I have not heard about any of this. So, wow, that's a really wild story. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think even within the U.S. establishment, you know, when this started happening, they were trying to find other reasons for it. But now there's just too many cases in different parts of the world and all government staff, right? Like they're targeting specific government people. So, yeah, yeah, it is kind of scary. Anyway, those are two very kind of <laughs> not very uplifting articles to read this week, but I think both of them are both of them are important. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Anything else you want to add, Ewan, before we put this one in the books? No, Cam. I uh, I think that's think that's about it. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Again, don't miss a show. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to YouTube and SoundCloud. Yeah, pop on there. You can find our channels. You can, you can listen that way. Um, and of course, the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So, for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.